along the lines of the song that we just sang, if you knew that a particular course of action was going to bring you great personal difficulty or suffering, and if people around you were trying to persuade you not to do it, how would you know if you should go forward or listen to what they were trying to persuade you to do? That's the situation that we see in our passage this morning with the story of Paul. Paul is preparing to go to Jerusalem, and Paul is warned in the passage that we look at that if he goes, he will be bound and he will face great difficulty, and Paul has to decide, is he going to proceed or is he going to turn back? And so we see at the beginning of chapter 21 that the journey continues from Miletus, where Paul has met with the elders from Ephesus and lists off several cities that they stop at. They cross over to Phoenicia and then skip Cyrus and go to Syria and land at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Uh, in terms of geography, Tyre would have been toward the north, uh, northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. It would have been a well-traded city. It was a sort of a hub of commerce in its day. And so it's not unusual that the ship that they were traveling on would have stopped there. While they were there at Tyre, it says they stayed there seven days. And they, the disciples, kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So this raises for us a question. Were they speaking through the Spirit? Was Paul being led by the Spirit? Was Paul resisting God's will to continue on to Jerusalem? How do we reconcile all these things? Well, if we look back to the chapter that we looked at last week, chapter 20 and verse 22, Paul said, Bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So I think first we should ask ourselves, what is this gospel, this message, that Paul was so determined to proclaim to his own people, despite the fact that they had often rejected this message and would likely do so again? The gospel message is simply this. All of us are sinners. We are condemned by God. God's anger rests on us. And yet, in Jesus, who came, born as a baby, we remember his birth at Christmas, living a perfect life, ministering for some three, three and a half years, and then being crucified by the Jews, buried, raised from the dead, and ascending to God the Father, that perfect life and perfect death in the place of those who are sinners satisfied God's wrath and made it possible for anyone who believed that message to trust in Christ to be accepted and forgiven by God. Paul was determined to preach that message to Jews who would be gathered at Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Jews from all around the world who had been scattered through various waves of persecution in their history, Jews who, perhaps some of whom, had heard the initial message in the preaching of Peter back in Acts 2 a number of years before, 
many of whom might not have heard that message, Paul was determined to preach the gospel at this strategic opportunity. Paul was also determined to carry the offering from the Gentile churches back to Jerusalem. He speaks of this plan uh, in general terms, both in Romans 15 and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let me read for you a few verses from Romans 15. Paul says to the Roman church, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul had spoken in this to his letter to the Corinthians prior to his coming there, and he said that the Macedonian churches... In chapter 8 and verse 2, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Paul's writing the Corinthian church to remind them of a similar commitment, and his goal was to make sure that this was done honorably, chapter 8 and verse 20, taking precautions so no one will discredit us in our administration of this faithful gift and with the goal that God would be praised and thanks. Verse 12 of chapter 9, the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There were people in Jerusalem who were poor, perhaps undergoing a time of famine, who needed help, who needed encouragement, and so Paul had organized a collection from the Gentile churches that he had founded on his three missionary journeys, collected it on his third journey, was now bringing it back to Jerusalem. Paul's goal was to present the gospel. Paul's goal was to show the fruits of the gospel by the generosity of the Gentile believers toward the Jewish believers and to make sure that this gift that he had worked so hard to collect would be arriving at its destination properly and safely and in good order. Could Paul have entrusted that to another person? Perhaps. But Paul had a sense that God was sending him to Jerusalem, and he wished to accomplish those two purposes while he was there. So going back to Acts 21, did this warning mean that Paul should not go to Jerusalem? We have to ask ourselves, had Paul faced persecution from the Jews before? The answer is yes. In pretty much every city that he went to, there were Jews who heard his preaching of the gospel, didn't like it, stirred up the local authorities or pagans against him, and he was driven out of a city. Sometimes it took as long as three years. Sometimes it was in the space of a few days or a couple of weeks. So this opposition to the gospel was nothing new that Paul was facing. And so the reality that he could be imprisoned or perhaps even be killed for proclaiming the gospel, was not something that would deter him. 
But verse 4 says, they told Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Some have raised the possibility that what the Spirit said was what the Spirit had said in several of these instances before, and what he had said to Paul in uh, verse 23 of chapter 20, that bonds and afflictions awaited him, and that Luke is trying to reflect the attitude of these people toward Paul in saying, if this is what's going to happen, don't go there. So we have this question, was it the Spirit saying, don't go, or was it the good intention of Paul's uh, friends and, and disciples that was this message of don't go down to Jerusalem? I think if we take this verse in context with the other verses, the ones we'll look at in a moment, the ones that we've already looked at, I think essentially the message that the Spirit had given to these people was, here's what's going to happen to Paul. And they were saying, if this is what's going to happen to you, don't go there. Luke seems to be setting up a progression, a parallel between the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Christ. Not that Paul's suffering or even potential death would accomplish the salvation of everyone in the whole world as the death of Christ had accomplished that people could be saved through him, but rather that Paul was living out the gospel that he was preaching and in the way that his life paralleled the life of Christ was providing yet another picture of Christ's ministry to those that Paul was ministering to. We see in chapter 21 and verse 5, when our days were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. There seems to be this sense that the people who were uh, telling Paul, don't go, didn't want to see him go, but seeing that he was going to go, they came to the beach, they prayed with him, perhaps for God's deliverance, perhaps for God's presence with him, and moved forward to Paul going on his journey and they returning to their homes. And then we arrive to the section that we read this morning in our scripture reading. He's proceeding down from Tyre to Ptolemais and then to Caesarea. And they are staying with various brethren and then they come to the house of Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist is someone that we have encountered earlier in the book of Acts. We saw him particularly fairly early on. He was one of the seven, uh, uh, sort of the first deacons of the church that we saw in Acts chapter 6. He was the one who encountered the man who was riding in his chariot at the end of chapter 8. He was seemingly based now in Caesarea preaching the gospel among the Samaritans and had been doing so for some time. It seems that either he has been married since then or uh, clearly now has had uh, these four children, according to verse 9. And uh, they are prophesying, although their prophecies are not recorded for us here. Chapter, or verse 10, we see a prophet named Agabus. This prophet named Agabus we saw back in Acts chapter 11. He was the one who had initially prophesied the famine that was going to come on Jerusalem that was connected with the earlier offering among the Gentile churches to help the poor in Jerusalem. Now, his prophecy is not going to be about the famine, but rather about what will happen to Paul. He has both a word and a visual picture of what's going to happen to Paul. He takes Paul's belt, and 
he wraps it around his feet and his hands, and he says, this is what's going to happen to you. The man whose belt this is, is going to be bound by the Jews and delivered to the hands of the Gentiles. What's the response of the disciples that hear this message that Paul is staying with there at Caesarea? They began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The, the, the words that Paul uses there is literally like um, when they would take clothing and they would sort of beat them dry with something. That, that's the, it, it's, you're breaking my heart. You're, you're beating up my heart. You are putting me in a terrible position. I, I don't want to see your sorrow, and yet this is something that I must do. If we were to parallel in Paul's life, with what we see in Christ's life, the parallel would be the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that he was going to suffer and he would die, and yet he prayed, saying, God, if this could be taken from me, let it be taken from me, but since it will not be, help me through it. And there seems to be very much a parallel with what Paul is experiencing here. And then verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. I would like to also raise for you the possibility that even if Paul was stubbornly going in his own purpose to Jerusalem, which I don't believe that he was, God could still use him. That doesn't give us an excuse to go our own way and to be stubborn and to be foolish but God can use, even if we make a wrong decision at this point, God can still use us here at this point, and God can still accomplish His purpose. Why do I say that? Because in Acts 2, God turned the wicked acts of the Pharisees and the Romans in the crucifixion of Christ to accomplish the salvation of the world. So if God can use that, and that was part of God's plan, God can also use us even when we make unwise choices. But as I've already said, I don't think Paul was making an unwise choice. I think Paul was caught in that moment of, he had a sense of what he believed God required of him. God had not perhaps revealed all the specific details, but had prophesied at the point of his conversion that Paul would suffer for the sake of the name and stand before kings and testify of the gospel and so Paul anticipated that that would come true. Could God have done that several ways? Yes. Which way did God do that? By Paul going to Jerusalem, being arrested, coming before these various rulers, and eventually even going to Rome. When Paul was being asked by, when they were begging Paul not to go up to this, not to go to Jerusalem, Think about what would have been going on in Paul's heart. These were people that he'd ministered to, some of whom had maybe been saved under his ministry. He didn't want to cause them sorrow. He didn't want to cause them grief. He didn't want to hurt them in any way. And yet, he believed that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. So what if that was you? Obviously, we don't have a specific revelation from God at the point of our conversion saying, here is what the long-term course of your life will be and where it will end. 
That being said, what truth do we have from the Scripture about what our lives will be like? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. The world will hate you because it hated me. But don't fear it because I've overcome the world. That there is joy in following Christ, but there is also difficulty because of the opposition of those who don't know him. So we have in the Christian life a guaranteed uh, mixing together of joy and sorrow. We don't know in what proportion. We don't know if it will be more joy or more sorrow until we walk the course of the life that God has given to us. But we know that both will be present. And if you came to a situation like Paul's, say that you were a missionary overseas and you knew that there was a threat to your life from the local authorities. Should you stay? Should you go? I don't know that there's always one right answer. It requires wisdom. It requires prayer. It requires godly counsel. It requires living with the results of whichever choice we make. So, if you faced a situation similar to Paul, is the gospel worth suffering for and even dying for? I think we would have to say the answer is yes. Does the gospel demand that we always choose the path of most suffering? No. We see that from Paul's own experience. Uh, he's going to cry out and say, I'm a Roman citizen, so I don't deserve to be beaten. He's also going to, at another point, allow himself to be beaten because in his mind it would serve the gospel. Sometimes it is the right choice to embrace the suffering. Sometimes it is the right choice to avoid the suffering if there's a legitimate means to do so. When Paul knew that it was likely that he would be killed by this riot that was taking place in Jerusalem, he appealed to the help of the Roman authorities and eventually he appeals to Caesar he was within his legal rights to do so. So we can take advantage of those protections. But I think the story of Paul teaches us at least a couple of things. One is that sometimes it's right for us to give our lives for the gospel. And there will be people around us who will not understand that decision and will try to pull us away from it. And if you are persuaded that it is the time that God has led you to do that, recognize that you have to follow what you are convinced God wants you to do in that situation. At the same time, recognize that we can put ourselves in foolish situations and bring unnecessary suffering on ourselves, whether through sin or unwise decisions. Peter talks about that in his epistles. So don't suffer because you've sinned. Don't suffer because you've made foolish choices. But if you suffer for the sake of Christ, then Peter says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator and recognize that God can and will be with you. Recognize the impact that your decisions have on people around you, though. If you have a family, you're in a different position than Paul was. Paul did not have a family, to our knowledge. 
So Paul saying, I'm willing to suffer and die, was not the same as Paul saying, and I'm going to condemn my wife and kids along with me. That's something else to be considered as well. But, do we see in our lives an opportunity to do what Paul says in another place, which is to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Not that there is anything lacking in the ability of Christ's suffering to accomplish salvation, but in the sense that Christ's death is not presently or immediately visible to every single person in the whole world, but when we live out that same sort of suffering on behalf of the gospel, people have a visible expression of what it means to be like Christ right in front of their eyes. And we should view that not as a burden, not as something to be feared, but as an opportunity and a gift from God. And that's completely opposed to the way that we would look at those sorts of things in our world today. You want to have money, you want to have health, you want to have happiness, you want to have all these things taken care of, and anything that threatens those things is something to push aside. What does God call us to? Be willing to follow me even if it costs you your money, your health, your seeming happiness, all of these things that we hold so dear in this world, which are all things that one, we can't control, two, don't last, and three, we will not have forever. So, what are we going to prioritize? Are we going to prioritize things that last, things that matter, or are we going to prioritize things that are just for a little while? As we've seen in Ecclesiastes, there is a time and place to enjoy food and fellowship and the fruit of our labors. And there is also a time and a place to recognize those things are temporary and under God's sovereign control. We have to hold both these perspectives in tension. I don't hate this world and try to ignore everything in it because there are good blessings God has given me in it. I don't love this world and live for it because my car and my house and my job and my family and all of these other things are for a little while. So they cannot be more important to me than God. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if you do not hate father or mother or brother or all of these things, you are not worthy of me. Not that we don't love them, but that our love for God is so much greater in comparison. Paul had a sense that he was to be a living example of what it means to follow Christ to the people that he was going to minister to. He had a sense that he wanted to preach the gospel message and show the fruits of that gospel message and go down to Jerusalem. And in so doing, I don't think that he was resisting God's will. So we come to verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mnason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So just a brief comment on these uh, transitional verses. They're going down from Caesarea to Jerusalem, from a Samaritan city to the city of the Jews. 
They're taking with them a man from Cyprus who was quite possibly either a Samaritan or a Gentile himself. And then they are going to meet with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, the head of which was James and the other elders who we had seen previously in Acts chapter 15. After he had greeted them, Paul, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Paul receives somewhat of a mixed response from the church of Jerusalem. On the one hand, there seems to be a rejoicing for the work that God has done among the Gentiles, potentially also in connection with the gift that Paul has brought, although it's interesting that there's no specific expression of thankfulness about that very generous gift from the Macedonians and the other churches. What is their almost immediate concern that they turn to? the rumors that have been spread about Paul. And what were those rumors? The rumors were, Paul, a Jew, has said Jews should not follow the law anymore, but instead they should give up the law, their children should not follow it, and Paul is turning everybody away from being a Jew. Was it true that Paul told the Gentiles to forsake Moses? Or the, the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses? it could perhaps be perceived in that way because Paul said Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. There's another sense in which it's very clear that Paul did not expect the Jews to fully forsake the law of Moses. How do we know this? Well, when Timothy was going to travel with him, he had Timothy follow the rites and rituals of being a Jew. But on the other hand, he did not force Titus, who was a Gentile, to follow those rites and rituals. So in Paul's mind, here's the way he looked at it. Christ has come, fulfilled the law. There is no longer any need for those who want to come to Christ to come through the Jewish system, the law of Moses, follow all these rites and rituals. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled all of that. So instead of coming through Christ this way, through the nation of Israel and then to God, Paul would say this, Gentiles and Jews have equal standing to God through Christ. That being said, both for the sake of the unity of the church and out of respect for the, uh, the legitimate traditions of Moses in the context of those who follow Judaism, Paul did not immediately require all of these who are Jewish Christians to stop observing the feasts and all the other things. Again, Paul was saying, we both have equal access to God. We cannot make following these things a requirement to be accepted before God. And that's what the church of Jerusalem had agreed with back in Acts chapter 15, right? Gentiles don't have to follow the law of Moses. But for the sake of unity and the honor of the church, here's the things that they ought to do. Don't commit idolatry. Don't commit adultery. Don't eat things in a certain way that would have greatly offended their, felt, their Jewish brethren in the churches. But it seems that there are some, perhaps even those, that Paul has opposed in books like Galatians who have said, follow the law of Moses or you're not accepted before God. 
and they have sort of stirred up a, an attitude in the church of Jerusalem that the law is just as important as it has ever been. So now the leaders of the church in Jerusalem find themselves in a difficult position. What are we supposed to do with Paul? If we just send Paul out there without any explanation or any preparation, they very well may kill him. And I don't think that they wanted that on their consciences. So what was their proposed solution? Verse 23. Do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourselves walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication or adultery. Then Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself along with them went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. A lot of context behind this. What seems to have happened was that there were four men who had a Nazarite vow, which was they were to grow their hair out for a certain period of time, abstain from drinking wine, don't touch anything that's dead, all of those sorts of things. It was a special opportunity for them to show their dedication to God. Paul himself had taken a similar vow earlier at a place called Sincrea, a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts. So Paul was not opposed to participating in this and did not see it as a compromise of the gospel because he was a Jew and they were Jews. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he was willing to behave as a Jew for the sake of presenting the gospel to the Jews. And he was willing to live among the Gentiles for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul accepted this solution. It's ironic to notice that it doesn't work, as we'll see in a few more verses, and yet Paul is willing to accept this solution. Paul was going to purify himself according to the rituals. Paul was going to pay the expenses of them completing their vows, the expenses being that they would have had to each offer a number of sacrifices in the completion of their vow, and it would have cost money for four sheep and four birds, and all of these other things that they would have had to sacrifice at the completion of their vow. Paul was, according to the Church of Jerusalem, their leaders, they were hoping that this would be a sign of good faith, that Paul doesn't hate the law, the rumors aren't true, and that the unity of the church would be preserved. But what happens next? Verse 27, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. Why is it significant that it's the Jews from Asia? Because these were the ones who were most violently opposed to Paul. We saw, we saw that on Paul's first missionary journey. These were the ones who beat him and left him for dead outside the city. These were the ones that weren't content to kick him out of their city. They followed him around to three more cities, at least, trying to stir up trouble. Some of them have now come to Jerusalem, presumably for the feast. They began to stir up the, cr the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, "'Men of Israel, come to our aid!' This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place, and he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, and the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They are so stirred up in their hatred for Paul that they're willing to make up false accusations against him and to suppose that he's done something that he has not. Does this sound familiar at all? Who else was falsely accused? 
Who else had lies told about him? Christ did. The Pharisees said, you have a demon. The Pharisees said, you're a liar. The Pharisees said, you're insane. When we see this attitude toward those who genuinely follow God, that there are those who are willing to bring lies against them and even unjustly put them to death because of their hatred against God. And we see this borne out once again. What's the response of the people? Verse 30. All the city was provoked. The people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. When it says they dragged him out of the temple, it's probably dragging him out of the court of the Jewish men and sort of taking him out to the court of the Gentiles. Verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And they began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! Paul, you clearly made the wrong choice. You've gotten yourself beaten and almost killed. Everyone is out to get you. And the Romans had to step in and save you. Or did he? God said that was what was going to happen to him. He was ready for it. He did what he theoretically should have done. And he's still looking for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the Jews which we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 22. Now, was it manipulative of Paul to get himself arrested so that the Romans would protect him and he would have an opportunity to speak to the Jews? There may have been some element of strategy involved, but I don't think that he was deliberately disobeying God in anything that he did. Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, when you are faced with a difficult decision and an almost certain outcome, what are you going to choose? Because the question for us is not, like Paul, are we going to resist the clear revelation of, of Scripture, like someone says, don't do this, we're pleading with you not to do it, based on a specific revelation from God. There may be a verse or a passage that someone says, uh, think about this, and if we are in the wrong, sure, we should think about that. But if it is a question of wisdom, which many of our decisions in life are, what is the best way to accomplish a goal that we know that should be accomplished? What are we going to love more? God or comfort? What are we going to prioritize more? Pleasing God to the best of our ability according to careful understanding of biblical commands and principles or being stirred up by what people will think of us or what they have said to us. Those are the sorts of decisions that we face at different points in our lives. Is it sometimes legitimate to not go to Jerusalem? Potentially. 
if someone believes that that is the path that God has called them to, is it our job always to persuade them otherwise? I think we have to recognize that there is a time and a place in which someone may willingly undergo suffering and we may not understand it, we may not wish it for them, we may plead with them not to do it, and they can still honor God by going that way. We should not idolize suffering and think that it earns us points with God. We should not flee from suffering and think that it's the goal of our life to avoid it altogether. Our lives, following Christ, are a mixture of joy and sorrow in different proportions. God will give us the strength to live that life in a way that honors Him, and we need to cry out to Him for wisdom and direction on how to do that to the best of our abilities. All the things that had been prophesied against Paul came true. We just saw that in these last few verses. He was bound with chains, he was beaten, he was nearly killed, and yet all the other things that God had said would take place are also going to take place. He's going to witness before the Jews. He's going to speak before kings, Agrippa, Festus, Felix, other Roman officials. He's going to stand before Caesar. The gospel is going to get to Rome. From church history, it seems he was released from Rome and eventually arrived at Spain. And then he ended up back in Rome again and was executed and martyred for Christ. So we don't know the day or the hour that our lives will draw to a close. We don't know the exact course of everything that will happen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to go here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I wasn't lying to you when I said I was going to go here. I took this route because of all of these circumstances. We saw even a few chapters before in Acts, Paul was going to go by ship. He ended up having to go by land. We don't know the exact course of our lives. We don't know the point at which our lives will end. The question for us, like it was for Paul, is, is our life lived in service of God, regardless of what happens? That's the question each of us has to wrestle with. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you give us the wisdom not to, not to be stubborn in some way and seek out suffering as though it somehow makes us better than everyone else, but also not to run from it because we think that we're better than all of those who have gone before us. Lord, help us to make the highest goal of our life to please you, which we know we cannot do unless we first know you and unless we are likewise committed, as Paul was, to pleasing you in everything that we do. Certainly he was not perfect. It seems he was wrong in his conflict with Barnabas. It seems that there were times when perhaps he did not respond as he could have in certain situations. And yet, like David, it seems that he was a man after your own heart who followed you faithfully despite the personal cost, overwhelmed by the sacrifice that Christ made on his behalf, overwhelmed by the need and the hopelessness of the people to whom he sought to bring the gospel to. Lord, help us to have that same kind of burden to take your truth to people around us. Help us not to fear the consequences because that is so often an obstacle for us. Help us to be wise in the way that we approach it. And Lord,
Lord, help us to realize that you are in control of the course of our lives and can turn it according to your purpose. Lord, help us to serve you faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.